All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hello, this is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. Last episode, we answered about what was 11 questions that we got asked on Facebook and on YouTube. However, we had a ton more that we weren't able to get to. So here's what I'm going to do this time. We're going to answer the rest of the ones that we have and I'm going to try to go through them as quickly as possible while at the same time providing an actual decent answer. But before that, I have a question for you. Have you liked, have you subscribed, have you shared this with your friends? Because if you haven't, well, then why should I answer any of your questions? No, I'm still going to answer your questions because I'm just a stand-up guy. But we really do need those likes, subscribes, and shares because it does help us get this out to more people. And it also gives us, it's one of the most positive ways you can give us feedback that you like what you're doing, you want us to continue. And then when you engage, whether it be asking us a question on Facebook, on our YouTube page, that lets us know which sort of show should we have in the future, right? This is a listener-driven show in so many respects. So the more feedback we get, the better the show is going to be for you. So let's go ahead and get into the questions. Now, last episode, I ended it on a question that we didn't have time to answer, but I thought it was a great question. So that was a little bit of a teaser, right? That was the, uh, that was the hook to get you to come back to listen to this one. Uh, shameless plug, and, but I make no apologies. All right, so this question came from Jude <clears throat> Infantini. He said, why are we bad at selling the idea of freedom? And what can we do to redirect the national conversation from what can I get from Uncle Sam to something like less government, more fun? Well, first of all, Jude, excellent question. This is something that I have racked my brain about. And honestly, I think you're onto something with the way that you actually worded this question, where you talked about less government, more fun. I think one of the problems that we have when we talk about freedom <clears throat> is we talk about it as if freedom is an in-state in and of itself, or as if liberty is an in-state in and of itself. Liberty is something that we are protecting so that you can do, go do all of the things that give life meaning and value, right? So for, for one person, that might look very, very different than for another person. And that's what's so critical about protecting liberty within the political or the government space is because everybody has a different idea on what pursuing happiness looks like. Yeah, there's, there's general things that we typically agree on, right? We want to be able to have enough food, have clothing, have a place to live. Um, but when you look at individual decisions that people make, they differ greatly based off of what they prefer, what they're good at, what their talents are, what their ambitions are. And liberty is about making sure that people can pursue those things. And so when you say less government, more fun, I think you actually, you're, you're tapping into something that's really important when we talk about this. Now, there's another component to the argument that I think is really important. 
A lot of times when you see people arguing for more government control of the economy or healthcare or education, they're always speaking from terms of the benefit to the person, right? Well, free healthcare, free education. Now we all know that at any practical level, those things aren't free, but they're talking about a benefit, right? And we're arguing for a concept. Now, that doesn't make it wrong in and of itself, but to some degree, politics is marketing. Now, unfortunately, what, one, what some people are marketing doesn't actually produce the end results of the benefits that they promise, right? It's almost like a form of fraud. Now, they may not be knowingly engaging in fraud, but ultimately, history has demonstrated that more government control, more central planning, less liberty produces bad results. It certainly doesn't produce the results that are being promised. And yet, here we are preaching freer markets, property rights, the, the right of each individual to pursue happiness in accordance with their definition of it, right? Again, those are all good concepts, but we need to talk more about what happens on the other end of that concept. What does it look like when you have more control over your child's education, right? Not just simply more money for education. No, no, no. What does education look like for you? What does it look like for your kids? I have three children, all of them learn differently. I want options because I want an educational environment that works for each child. Why? So that they can go pursue what makes them happy and they can go find meaning and purpose, right? Again, I'm, I'm a Christian, so that means living out my faith, right? I want the freedom to be able to do that and do that effectively. So I think that to your point, we need to be able to argue not only about this conceptually, we need to not only make um, the, the economic arguments for why we believe what we believe, we also need to make the moral argument because ultimately what this comes down to is not Republican and Democrat, right? It's not just left versus right. These might be terms that have some value within the current political narrative, but ultimately it's a difference in worldview, right? Do you believe in, in the inherent value of people? Do you believe that they have an inherent right to go out and pursue happiness, providing they're not infringing on the rights of others, right? If you believe in those things, then we should be passionate about creating an environment where they are free to pursue those things. And then we should talk about not only that from a conceptual level, but we should talk about it from a benefit level. And then we should use examples. We should use examples of people that have either come to this country or have fled a socialist state for a, a free market environment. And we should talk about what happens when you unlock all of that, that power and that innovation and that creativity when someone that has been shackled by a system that has deliberately held them back because they treated them like nothing more than a cog in a larger machine. And now for the first time in their life, they're able to breathe free and make their life their own. Oh my gosh, that, that is the, that's not just a selling point because it all speaks to us or it speaks to all of us. It's a selling point because it is true. And so I think that's one of the things that we have to do, you know, win the conceptual argument, talk about the reason why we want more freedom and more liberty is because it empowers people to be able to make their life their own, and then talk about the benefits and the practical examples. You know, not just the, not just the flow charts, right? We, we actually need to talk about those, those specific advanced, uh, um, examples that are demonstrative, right? That are actually demonstrative of a larger experience that people have had going from more government control to more freedom, right? And I think that, that's a key component of this. The other part is we gotta talk to our kids about this. Understand that if you're sending your kids off to an institution where they're gonna be constantly told that the solution or, or the primary way to solve problems is through the application of government force, coercion, and violence, 
right? Then don't be surprised when you're pe- preaching freedom to them and all they hear is you don't care about the poor. All they hear is that you don't care about the collective. All, all they hear is you don't want to solve problems because you don't want the government to come in, you know, with, with a bullhorn and tell everybody what to do, right? We have to actually start teaching the alternative at a younger age and, and, and take some interest in what our kids are learning when they go off to school. Because if we don't do that, then it's going to be a whole lot harder to make that argument when now they're 25, 26, 27. And now not only are there, there are now social and academic and eventually economic consequences, because that's what we see, right? The social consequences, when you go to college as a conservative, you can be alienated. The academic consequences might be you might get a bad grade. The economic consequences might be you could be fired, not be able to get a job, or, or could in some other way be punished because you believed the wrong thing. So we have to start that argument early. And when I talk about making that argument, I don't mean sheltering your children from any point of view except for the one that you like. I mean truly equipping someone to be able to make an argument for greater individual liberty and the inherent value of human beings and and why a system which actually relishes free markets, property rights, self-determination, and personal responsibility actually achieves the sort of results that everyone else is promising you. So that's, that's where I think we need to go, right? And, and, and again, that's one of the reasons why I do this podcast. It's one of the reasons why I do the Why Minutes. It's one of the reasons why I go around and talk to people. It's one of the reasons why I answer questions from leftists and give them priority when they ask questions is because I want that sort of engagement. I want to be able to give an argument for what we really believe, not the caricature that is constantly fed to us by Hollywood, the mainstream media, and academia, right? So we can't just make a good argument for what we believe, or I, I'll put it this way. It's not just making a good intellectual argument for what we believe. It's actually living out your life in such a way to where someone can point to it and be like, I don't know what that person is doing, but it's working. And then when they come and they ask you, being able to give an explanation. Hey, man, it's this. Right? So listen, Jude, great question. Um, I hope that answers it. All right, moving on to the next one. Uh, Dan Cook asked, what is being done to restore faith in the election process? Okay, a couple of things. Obviously, people have very different opinions on what constitutes faith in the election process. If you're on the left, you actually have a great deal of faith in the last election process, even though maybe you didn't have a great deal of faith in the election process when Stacey Abrams lost the governor's race in Georgia, right? So their lack of faith in the election process tends to be around what they call voter suppression, right? This belief that there are institutional laws in place which are there to deliberately suppress minority votes, right? Now, again, They don't typically point to portions on the books that actually do that, or when they do, you you can't really find any way that it's actually achieving the nefarious purpose that they say it is, right? So that's what the left typically means, right? And I don't want to overly generalize, but it's typically what they mean when they talk about their um, insecurities or, or, or problems with the election process. On the conservative side, it generally has to do with the 2020 election cycle, right? It has to do with certain voting machines. It has to do with the way that uh, certain registrars or certain uh, departments of election handle election results or handle the whole voting process, how state legislatures and the courts interpreted various things. We saw this in both Pennsylvania and Virginia, where all of a sudden you're having these drastic changes in voting laws, either through the special session or through the courts, which on, on some level seem to violate, if not the respective state constitutions, at the very least, process procedures and what we generally consider to be fair play. All right, so how are we addressing those concerns? I'm going to tell you there's, there's two ways to do it. You're not going to li- you might not like either answer, but it, it's the truth, right? The first answer is this. 
most election law is developed at the state level. For those people that are pushing more for more federal control over election law, you don't want that. All right, let's let's face it. I don't care if Nancy Pelosi's in charge or Kevin McCarthy's in charge. I don't want Congress deciding what individual state election law should look like. Right, that was not the way our Constitution was set up to handle with these issues, and it was done that way for a very specific reason. We don't need things like HR one, which put all the power on Washington D.C. So what that means is you have to get involved in your state legislatures, right? That means getting the right people elected that are actually going to put into place the sort of policies that you think that will ensure greater election integrity. Some of these things include things like voter ID uh, laws. Some of this uh, has to do with not allowing for ballot harvesting or other things that make it very, very easy to engage in fraud, right? So state election law is where you really need to go if you want to see a legal remedy to some of the problems that we currently witness. However, there is another solution, and this is one I want everyone to pay attention to, because I like this solution, I'll tell you why. Because it doesn't put the power in the hands of politicians. If you want to actually have a significant effect on election law within your area, you want to do something about election integrity in the area where you live, I've got good news. You don't got to wait on a politician. You can go down to your local registrar, and you can volunteer to be a part of the, the polling staff. Because a, a big component of this is we need more people that are concerned about election integrity to actually get involved in manning the polls in an official capacity and then transferring, you know, being a part of that process, that chain of custody when it comes to counting ballots, when it comes to um, you know, taking a voting machine from one location to another one, making sure that it's properly secured and locked up, making sure that, you know, strange stuff isn't going on. Being involved in that process is key, right? It, none, nothing is a silver bullet. We need a little bit of everything. But if you're looking for a way that you can have a significant impact right now without asking for permission from anyone else, go down to your local registrar, volunteer to do that. They are always looking for support staff. So that is one way that people can directly get involved, right? And you don't got to wait for an election cycle. All right, good question, Dan. Thank you for asking. Uh, Charlotte, gosh, Charlotte has, wow. So Charlotte says, we just had a shooting in our fairly small town. And somebody commented that there's no respect for anything anymore. And Charlotte's thought was, why should they? We quit respecting life in the 70s. Did they ever think it was gonna get any better? So Charlotte asks, what are the long-term and varied effects of abortion? Um, you know, I, I was speaking on this in the Virginia General Assembly once, and, and the way that I described it was I said that, you know, I, I obviously have no idea what it is like to be a young woman in a situation with a pregnancy that she didn't anticipate, but I do know what it's like to be her son, because that was my mother's situation, and she had to give up college, she had to give up some pretty significant opportunities to have me, and she did that. I think for a variety of reasons. Now, a lot of people will automatically go to, well, it was, it was her faith or her religious conviction that did that. And yes, I do think that informed her decision. But I, I think it was, it was something that was a component of that. And that is the idea that she had an inherent value for human life. She recognized that in her situation, she voluntarily made a decision, you know, her and my dad, and that I shouldn't pay the price for that decision. And so her respect for human life meant that she was going to take responsibility for her actions, that my father was going to take responsibility for his actions, and that they were going to raise me. And 
Look, it, like in so many situations, it didn't work out perfectly, right? My, my mom and dad didn't stay together, but I was, I was blessed to have both a mother and a father, even if they weren't you know, married uh, for most of the time that, that I was growing up. They still valued human life and took seriously their responsibility to raise me uh, and to do that in the best capacity possible for the situation that they were in. And so I, I think, Charlotte, I think you bring up a really good point here, and that's that idea that when we have made abortion not only legal, right, which happened with, with Roe v. Wade, which was, again, a horrible legal decision, regardless of where you stand on the issue of abortion, if you look at what this, the Supreme Court decision said, they, they pretty much wrote that out of whole cloth, right? It was, a, it was a very, very bad decision from a legal perspective. But let's say you agree with it anyways. We do have to ask the question, what does this mean with respect to how society views the inherent value of human life? Now, it used to be that people would simply say, well, it's, it's not a human life or it's not a baby, it's just a fetus, it's just a clump of cells. And, and maybe you could have gotten away with that argument in, in the 70s or, or, or 80s. I still think it was problematic, but maybe you could have gotten away with it. The problem now is, is that the, the level of um, science that we have, or excuse me, the, the level of uh, technological advancements that we've had in our understanding of science forces us into a situation where, because we, we have mapped DNA, because we do know how to make various distinctions with respect to biology. It is impossible to come to any, any, any other, in, in my opinion, it is impossible to come to any other rational scientific conclusion that other than that at the point of conception we are talking about human life. I would argue it's impossible to come to any other legal conclusion that at the point of conception we're not only talking about human life but innocent human life. And so really what this debate is about is at what stage and under what conditions is it appropriate for someone to be able to deliberately destroy innocent human life. And the abortion argument, you know, it varies, but, but more and more it's gone to this idea that all the way up until the first breath. So that means as the child is moving down the birth canal, and if you think this is an extreme policy, I would just remind you that in the Virginia General Assembly, we had someone that carried this bill that said that you can have an abortion all the way up and to the, to the point where the baby is moving down the birth canal and they could still have an abortion, not because of any significant you know, medical complications, not to save the life of the mother, but if a, if a doctor and a mother determined that this was just stressful, that you could have an abortion. I think you really have to start the, ask, the same question that Charlotte's asking here is, doesn't that have implications with respect to how people view human life? And I would argue that the abortion debate has gone beyond this idea, whereas once upon a time, I mean, all of us now remember when the abortion debate was largely uh, this idea of it's an unfortunate necessity. Now, again, I would disagree with that, but that was the argument that was being made. It was an unfortunate necessity. More and more, it's been advertised by Planned Parenthood and by other similar organizations as a form of female empowerment, that, that having an abortion almost... Um, it is a statement of your independence. And that does beg the question, because from a scientific perspective, if we are talking about innocent human life, and we are saying that within this category, not only can you destroy it, um, but that destroying it is, on some level, a manifestation of female empowerment, what are the implications outside the womb? 
Because regardless of where you stand on this issue, I'm willing to bet most people don't see a great deal of difference between an eight pound baby moving through the birth canal and an eight pound baby laying on a bed five minutes after the fact, five minutes after they were born. Most people can recognize that there is not a significant difference between that entity at one stage and another stage. And yet we're being told that it is not only, it should not only be legally allowed but it's a form of empowerment to destroy that life. And, and if you think I'm going nuts here on, on making the implication that this, this, this has consequences for how people view life in general, I would just encourage you to go and read, you know, the, the, one of the head ethicists at Yale, I think it was uh, Dr. Singer, came out and said that you should be able to abort your child two years after it's born. And his argument was because at that point it's still relatively dependent upon you. So I, I, I think we need to understand that more and more, th- these things don't happen in a vacuum. And if you have convinced a generation of people that the act of destruction of innocent human life at, at one stage is not only perfectly appropriate, but empowering, just, and necessary, you shouldn't be shocked when other people make the conclusion that it can be good, powerful, and necessary in other stages of life. Not to mention the fact that This is all made possible also by kind of this postmodernist view of the world where there's no such thing as objective truth and there's no such thing as objective reality. It's this idea that everything is subjective or everything is open to perspective. You see this within uh, deconstructionism and the way that we view language. You see this with, again, postmodernism with respect to the way we, we view truth. And I think we've got a lot of people now that started something in the 60s and 70s where their idea of getting rid of objective truth was to remove the shackles of something that was burdensome in order to open something up, in order to free love and experimentation and drugs and whatever else it was. And now it is manifesting itself in something that they never intended, but is completely and totally logically consistent with what they were taught. So maybe in the 60s and 70s, it was throw off the shackles of your religion or of tradition or whatever else it was so you can live however you want. Well, now 10, 20, 30 years down the road, we have people living in a way that those people never anticipated that is incredibly violent or self-centered or antisocial or destructive. And as soon as those people come back and say, that's not what we meant, the people living those, those, making those decisions look back at them and say, no, 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 you don't get to judge me because you already threw out objective truth and objective morality. And so I, I do think to some degree we are living in a, in a sort of grisly, af- grisly aftermath of what happens when you eliminate certain concepts that are not just merely social concepts. They are, they, they are what I believe to be truth that society or individuals as a whole recognize and then attempt to adopt their behavior toward. And so, no, I, I do believe that, Charlotte, you, you bring up an incredible question, and I, and I think the, the underlying assumption behind the way your question was worded is spot on. You cannot tell people in one minute that it's okay to systematically destroy innocent human life, and the next minute um, claim moral outrage when someone decides to do it in a different component. And some people might say that's going too far, but uh, again, what I, what I would ask is you need to explain how the logical consistency isn't there, uh, because I think it is. So anyways, good question, Charlotte. All right, another question. Uh, Cataphracts, one, two, three. How should the government be funding studies and what sort of studies should be conducted? This is a good question, because a lot of times you'll see the government uh, throwing things in there like, hey, we're gonna study this, or we're gonna study that. And I will tell you right now, 
There are certain things that I think is appropriate for the government to study. The question becomes is, why do a study in the first place? Like if you are doing a study in direct relation to government policy, which is to say, um, let's say you're a member of Congress. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution lists out what your enumerated powers are. And let's say you're going to implement a new law or a policy that falls within your enumerated powers, but you want to get some feedback or some research back in order to determine whether or not that policy is going to achieve certain end states. I think that makes sense. I think you can make an argument that that's a legitimate study, that that would fall under the necessary and proper clause that Congress has. Let's say that you're going to do a study based off of um, an oversight component. So for instance, you think the executive branch or the judicial branch is doing something which violates their constitutional war uh, role or perhaps infringes on yours. I think that's an appropriate place to do a study. I get skeptical of a lot of the funding that, that government puts into studies in order to achieve you know, outcomes or potentially manipulate outcomes in order to justify the policy they wanted to do in the first place, right? I think that's problematic. Here in the Virginia legislature, we have something called JLARC, and they provide studies on, on a whole host of issues. Sometimes uh, we'll, we'll ask for a study in order to inform future legislation, or we'll ask for a study to say, okay, this is what we thought this legislation was going to do. We want to see how it's performing. Again, I think that falls within the legitimate functions of government and the oversight roles. I think that's appropriate. I do not think government should be funding studies through universities as a way of political manipulation to justify what they want to do in the first place or as, as a you know token thing that they do to, to get money into their district. So they're going to get a bunch of money for a study because the university happens to fall within their district. They don't even really care what the study's about. All they know is their university wants the money and they want to give them the money. That's problematic. I don't think that's, that's uh, justified constitutionally and I don't think it's appropriate either. So hope that answers your question. Jason Price, how do we fix Social Security? <laughs> well, thanks for the easy one, Jason. I appreciate that. Um, but look, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and, and answer it and answer it honestly in a way that will probably, um, you know, ruin my chances for any other office, which might be a blessing for me. I know there's a lot of people on the left that think that would be a huge blessing. Here's the problem with Social Security. Um, I understand the concept behind on, on why they wanted to do it. Right? It was the idea that you have certain people that you they they get to an age where they can no longer. Um, engage in, in productive labor. You don't want them dying on the streets. You don't want them in absolute destitution. You want there to be some sort of process whereby they, they can at least maintain a, a certain standard of liberty where they, or excuse me, um, of life where they can feed themselves, have clothes, you know, the, the basic essentials, right? So that was the idea. Um, and, and I think all of us agree that it, it is good to save for retirement. Here's my question with Social Security. Who thought the United States, the federal government, would be good at managing a retirement program. Because, I mean, from, from what I can tell, they've almost never been able to manage their own budget. Why in the heck would I want to managing my retirement? And, and why would I want to be forced into a retirement program that I'm required to contribute to, that I don't necessarily want, that I think that they are running horribly, that they have demonstrated time and time again that they lack the capacity to actually make sure that it's solvent or even a wise investment? Right, because your social security check is not based off of other people. It's not based off of what you put into the system so that you would then save up and have something that you could live on. That's not what social security is. Social security is your kids and grandkids are putting stuff in to pay you because what you put in was already spent on, on previous recipients. Right? In, in any other case, if, if the private sector was doing something similar to what social security is doing, 
it would fall very, very close to the legal definition of a Ponzi scheme, right? And every time we say that, it's like, oh my gosh, they called Social Security a Ponzi scheme. How could you call something a Ponzi scheme that millions of people are relying on? I've got news for you. It doesn't matter how many people are relying on it. Whether or not something is like a Ponzi scheme is completely dependent upon the structure of the way that people take in money and the way they distribute the money. And if you don't like me comparing it to a Ponzi scheme, don't take it up with me. Take it up with the politicians in Washington, D.C. that constructed it that way and continue to operate it that way. Because that's the real problem. I'm mad about this. I'm not saying this because I'm anti-elderly people getting money out of a system that they paid into. That's not what I'm against. What I'm against is how horribly the government has ran this. And what I'm against is the people that thought the government would ever run it effectively in the first place. So what's the solution to Social Security? Here's what I would accept, right? Because there, there's, a, there's an economic reality and there's a social and political reality. The economic reality is this is a poorly run and managed system. And, and it has been from the very beginning. It's not like this happened in the six. There was problems that happened in the 60s and 70s, but it, that's not where it started. This was always a poorly managed system. So what would I do? I think we need to get into a situation where someone like me, I'm 41 years old. I've paid into Social Security for over 20 years now. If you told me tomorrow, Nick, we're going to take 75% of what you pay into Social Security we're going to use it to pay people that are currently on Social Security or are about to go into Social Security, rely upon it. Um, and you're never going to see Social Security. We're not going to give it to you. But you get to keep the remaining 25% to put whatever retirement you want. I would take that deal in a heartbeat. I would not even hesitate. I would totally give up the supposedly secure payment that the government is promising me once I reach retirement if they would just allow me to have 25% of what I'm currently giving to them in order to put into my own retirement front. I would do that. And the reason I would do that is because if you go back to the 30s and 40s when this was first implemented and you calculate what you, would, what you were putting into Social Security and you calculate if you were of, of the age where you actually paying Social Security at that time when it first started, just beginning your, your career, your productive you know, time in the economy, all the way up to when you retired at, say, 65, the amount of money you would have got by just putting it in the overall New York Stock Exchange average would have been so significantly higher than anything Social Security will ever pay you. It's absurd. So that's why I would take that deal. That's why I would take a fraction of what I pay into Social Security. And, and I, I would admit, look, it, and keep something in mind, that's not fair. I'm willing to accept something that is unfair if it means that we're actually providing people an opportunity to use their own money to pick the retirement plan or options of their choice instead of being coerced into using a government program that is not that it, that will eventually fail without significant changes and will never produce the sort of results that the free market can actually produce if you spend just a little bit of time just a, a tiny bit of time doing some research and putting it into a, a private account. Now, part of the reason I would do that is if it means that my kids, when it becomes their time, they only have to give up 50%. And if it means my great-grandkids could only give up 25%. And after that, if it means we go on a completely voluntary system where it's essentially, if you want Social Security, great. If you think the government's going to be good at managing your retirement, no problem. You just pay into the system and the government manages your retirement. But if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. I don't think we're going to get there overnight. I think for political and social reasons, it's going to take time. But I would be willing to deal 
with, with the problems associated with me giving up 75% of what I pay into Social Security if it meant I can keep 25% to invest it the way I want for my retirement. Not only for the benefits that would mean for, for me and my family or for the people that are currently collecting Social Security, all right, but for future generations. Because while I, I do think Social Security has been horribly run, I do think we have an obligation to, to make good on our, on our promises. But I think it's also time that while we're making good on those promises and while we're, or while, better yet, while we're forcing current people to make good on past promises, we should recognize that we made a bad promise and that we should adjust what we're doing in the future so that we protect the people that are currently dependent upon it or about to be dependent upon it while providing new options for different people that are, that are now coming up within the economy. And if we're not willing to do that, then you need to ask yourself, why is it that so many politicians are so married to this idea that they have to control your retirement? Could it be that they're more concerned with control than they are with really taking care of people? Right, that, I'm not accusing anybody of having that motivation, but it might be a good question to ask if nobody is willing to actually let you have that option. And if every time someone like me mentions that option, I'm being told that I want old people to starve in the streets, maybe you should view that accusation with a little bit of skepticism. All right, next one. Barbara, why aren't we deporting people in the country illegally when they break the law? Barbara, good question. First of all, we do. All right, so we do deport some people, some people we don't deport. It depends on what you mean by breaking the law. Because if you come to the country illegally, you have already broken federal law. I, I, I hate to break this to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but no, it is illegal to come into the country. The moment you come into the country illegally, you have already broken the law. You don't have to break any other law to have already broken our laws. So the question is, is why don't we deport those people? Okay, a couple things. First of all, if you come into the country illegally, I do think, I, I, I do obviously think that there, you should be deported. Right now, do we all acknowledge that there's a huge problem? We have you know 20 million people in the country illegal. Some of them that have, have grown up here. Some of them that have been here since they were one years old. Yes, we all agree that that's an issue. And when we all agree that there's a certain degree of nuance in that, right? Everyone, Trump agreed with that, right? Uh, arguably, the president that that fought the hardest on immigration reform and policy also agreed that there was nuance with respect to that. However. When you have someone that has come into the country and has broken the law and has done something egregious, right? They have uh, murdered someone. They have raped someone. A lot of times they're, they're murdering or raping within those same immigrant communities that politicians claim to care about. Question is, what do we do in that situation? Well, in that situation, what I would argue is this. Some of the reasons why we incarcerate those people is because we want to make sure that they are punished for the law that they broke within our country. So I don't necessarily want to take someone that we've convicted of murder and then just deport them to another country where I can't be, uh, you know, I can't have any real reasonable assurance that they're going to remain in jail or that they're going to be punished for what they did in our country, right? I don't want to deport them to a country, they let them out, then they cross the border again and murder someone else. So that's one of the reasons why we sometimes house people that have broken the law, that, that have crossed over to the country illegally and have broken the law in our country. That is sometimes why we take the burden of prosecuting and incarcerating them. It's because we want to make sure that they actually pay a price for the crime that they have committed. Okay, so there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in immigration policy, immigration reform, and border security, but I hope that answers your question on why not everybody is just immediately, you know, deported, all right? Again, with, with the two-year-old that was brought here, we understand that there's some nuance. With the, with the person that just crosses the border illegally, I'm sorry, it's inappropriate. And bottom line is, is I'm a very pro-immigration uh, conservative. I, I believe in immigration, but to some of my friends on the left, you also want a big welfare state. And if you want a huge welfare state, you also can't have open borders because one is going to overwhelm the other. 
right? So you want to compromise on, on this welfare state and you want to go back to these sort of United States where, yes, a lot of people came over because the bottom line is you, you came to the United States for opportunity. You didn't come to the United States to get a free ride. Well, that's a much different incentive structure. And I'm happy to talk about that incentive structure. But in the meantime, people coming in the United States illegally, I'm, I'm sorry that there's, there's a price to be paid for that that should not be borne by our citizens. And that is going to include a certain degree of uh, deportation. However, you create an egregious crime, you hurt an American citizen, we are going to make sure you be punished for that. Right? We're not simply going to leave it up to a foreign government in the hopes that they will also incarcerate you or, or give you a punishment which fits the crime. So Barbara, I hope that answers your question. All right, another one, August. August asks, to win against the radical left, we need to rally together. What are you doing to help get conservatives into the fight? You mean other than running for office, working on multiple campaigns, raising money, doing a podcast, and running the Y Minutes? Like other than those things? <laughs> no, it's, it, look, it's a good question. Um, and, and one of the things I'm becoming more and more um, convinced of is this idea of I'm, I'm, political parties are, are mechanisms, right? And, and I, I'm obviously, I'm a sitting Republican, right? So I'm, I'm not trashing political parties. I'm just saying that it's, it's a mechanism. It isn't the in-state. There, there's a couple of things that we need to do if we're serious about actually advocating for the philosophy that we believe in. And that, what that means is, is that, yes, political advocacy is a, a big component of that. Unifying once you get past a nominating contest, right? So you have a primary, you have a convention. A lot of times we have uh, people that will run for office in the primary convention and just trash their, their, you know, their, the other people in the race. And then they get into a general and they go back to all those same people. They go back to all the people that supported those people and say, well, now you need to support me. And a lot of people are like, forget you, right? So I, I've seen this happen. Um, and, and it's frustrating. So we need to be more disciplined. The voters need to actually demand more of their candidates with respect to how they run and how they run against fellow members of their own party. But ultimately, we need to do a better job of not only arguing for what we believe, but actually living out we, we, what we believe. What do I mean by that? Um, you know, I, I talked to someone the other day uh, and, and their church group said, you know what, there, there is a need in our community for medical care. There's a need in our community for education. There's a need in our community for dental care. We're going to do it. How groundbreaking, how incredible, right? A, a church looked at the obligations that they have within their faith and said, you know what? We're not currently meeting these needs and we should. And so we're going to. They didn't call my office and say, hey, Delegate Freitas, before we can do this, we need a bunch of money from the state. They, they, didn't, they didn't call and, and try to get all the laws changed. They didn't do any of that. What they did is they saw a need and they went out and they met it. And, and that is one of the single greatest things that we can do to actually have an impact on our communities and societies. Because one of the biggest questions we get asked is if the government isn't going to do these things, who is? Well, you know what? If we're the answer to that question, we won't get asked that question. And it's the single, it's, it's the single greatest impediment that we have in convincing more people to vote the way that we would like to vote, to vote for more liberty, less government, more free markets, less central planning. Because if all they've known since the moment they were born is the government educates me, the government provides my health care, the government provides the food on my table, and, and we come back with, well, the government shouldn't be doing those things, what do you think they're hearing? But simply taking things away. Now, yes, we know that if you take the government out of that equation, you're actually going to get more opportunity for people to be able to be independent of the government instead of dependent upon politicians. We know that to be true. 
But we have to help demonstrate why that's true within the environment that we currently occupy. And so that's why I say part of, the, part of this is about making a good intellectual and academic argument for what we believe. Part of it is about making a good emotional and social argument for what we believe, a moral argument. And part of it is about living it out within our lives. And part of living that out with respect to unifying people around a particular core set of beliefs is demonstrating our passion for them in executing them in the way that we think they should be executed. Right, so that, that's, how we, that's how we unify conservatives around something. And I'll continue to use every mechanism at my disposal in order to do that. Right? We've, we've got another school starting up in my community. I'm trying to help with that. We've got some other people that are actually trying to address a homeless issue in our community. I will continue to help with that. Why? Because that's living out what I believe, not just talking about it. So that's what it is. The, the talking about it's important. right? You get some people like, we don't need another speech. or We don't need another argument. Okay, well, yeah, you do, because we're not winning all the arguments. So we need to be able to make those arguments. But then we need to, we need to solidify that argument through action. And that action is not just voting. That action is actually living out our principles in a practical way that other people can see and then ask us about. All right, so I hope it answers your question. August. Okay, Dave Eubank. Negative rights and how the government is not the grantor of those rights, but the defender. All right, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I've already talked about this in previous episodes, but what David is getting at here is absolutely right. It's the difference between negative rights and positive rights. A lot of times you will see people in politics that want more government power, more government control, more government redistribution, and when you talk about rights, they'll say, no, 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 we support rights. We just support these positive rights because you should have a right to healthcare. You should have a right to a livable wage. You should have a right to food. You should have a right to a car. You should have a right to, I don't know, a subscription at a country club. I don't know what you're supposed to have a right to anymore. It seems to be endless. So what's the difference? When he says negative rights, he's actually keying us into something that's really important here because positive rights sound so much better than negative rights. So what's the difference? Right, well, a negative right is essentially a restriction on government power to prevent you from doing something. And a, and a key component of a negative right is, is that it, it, talking about this right is, doesn't, uh, so me exercising a particular right, like so for instance, me engaging in a podcast, me talking about my ideas, that isn't, I am, I am utilizing um, my right to free speech. Now the government didn't give me that right, the government recognized that as a pre-existing right, which you might call a God-given right or a natural right. And what the government did within the First Amendment is say, we understand, right? We understand that that is a, is a natural right and it is, it is not our role to infringe on that right. Our goal is to protect that right, right? So that is a, that's an understanding of negative rights. It's the idea that the government understands that this is a pre-existing right and that your ability to... Um, to live and exercise that right does not infringe on somebody else's ability to, uh, to exercise their right. Now, a positive right would be, okay, we have freedom of the press, which means the government has to actively provide everyone in the country a printing press. That would be a positive right because now you're actually receiving some sort of good or service. Here's the problem with positive rights. They automatically negate negative rights. Because anytime the government gives you something, it is giving you something at the expense of someone else. Let me give you another example of this. I had a colleague of mine come to me in the General Assembly and say, Nick, I have a rules change. I don't think we should allow people to conceal carry in the gallery when they're observing the House of Delegates session. And I said, well, I don't think I would agree with that. And she goes, well, Nick, you are a Green Beret. You understand that you never want the enemy behind you on the high ground. And I said, well, that's the problem. I don't see my constituents as my enemy. And she kind of looked at me and said, that's not fair. That's not what I meant. And I said, okay, well, what do you mean? 
And she goes, well, do you think your right to keep and bear arms supersedes my right to feel safe? And I said, I wouldn't use that argument if I were you. She asked me, why not? I said, okay, so what you're saying is you have a, quote, right to feel safe and that the government has an obligation to help you feel safe. She said, yes. I said, okay, then presumably I also have a right to feel safe. And she looked at me and she goes, yes. I said, okay, great. I only feel safe if everyone in the gallery has guns. So we're going to issue them one before they sit down. How is the government now supposed to adjudicate between your right to feel safe and my right to feel safe? Right, see, that's, that's, that's the issue. Is whenever the government is essentially trying to claim that something is a right that cannot possibly be a right, or is saying that you have a right to a commodity or a service, here's what I want you to understand. Every time the government says you have a right to something that is a commodity or a service, education, healthcare, whatever it is, every time they say you have a right to it, what they are actually saying is that you have an inherent right to the liberty or property of someone else. That is why positive rights automatically negate negative rights, right? So negative rights, good, positive rights, absurd. And we need to make sure that we have a government that understands that the negative rights that they are charged with protecting are not something that they have granted to us. They are pre-exist. They are something that pre-exists that they are responsible for protecting. All right, next one. I'm trying to get through. I'm going to try to get through these rest of these ones. I'm going to try to go quick. All right, here we go. Um, Kurt Klein, what are options for physical, physical therapy for the brain, how to help veterans with this, and how that could be beneficial for everyone going forward? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the bottom line is I, I don't claim to be a, a, an expert with respect to um, you know, physical therapy in general, much less physical therapy with respect to something so, you know, is important for the brain. I'm, I'm not quite sure what you mean by physical therapy of the brain, but I will say this. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of study and research that has gone into things like PTSD, because obviously we had a lot of people within law enforcement, first responders, and military that were dealing with post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. And they're trying to find different ways that they could actually address that. And one of the things that they found to be very, very effective, and as much as I hate to admit it as a good Army guy, the Navy SEALs have, have implemented some of this. They started looking at PTSD from a prevention standpoint, not just a treatment standpoint, right? So not just waiting until after you have it and then treating it, but actually creating a scenario where they're preparing people that are going to go into stressful situations to be able to properly analyze what is going on neurologically and physiologically when they actually encounter a stressful situation. So for instance, if you tell me I'm a former Green Beret, I've, I've been in combat, I've been on numerous raids, I've been in some interesting situations. If I came home and you told me, oh, Nick, you'd have PTSD, you're broken, so I want you to sit and talk with somebody that has never shared any of the experiences that you have, and they're going to fix you. I can tell you where I would have told you to stick it, right? And, and that, is, that is how a lot of us kind of feel about that when we get treated like we're broken or we're misfits or we're victims. You want to piss off a combat veteran like me? Act like I'm a victim. Right? I'm, I'm not saying nobody in the military has never been victimized, but my gosh, going, going to an all-volunteer force and then going to war is not synonymous with victimization. So one of the things that they recognized about these sort of A-type personalities who you know, don't want to sit there and, and, and necessarily cry all night with a therapist is they started incorporating certain aspects of training when they were doing their combat training. So for instance, as they were going through the shoot house, what a shoot house is, is an area where you can go and you can shoot live rounds and you can practice different scenarios where you're doing things like hostage rescue um, or, or going after the bad guys in, a, in an urban setting, right? And so what they started doing is they started to monitor these guys with respect to their heart rate, with respect to their stress level. 
And instead of talking about it from the standpoint of, oh, this is really bad for your mental health, here's how they talked about it. They said, you notice how your shot group was really good right here, but then it went to crap on iteration number three, or it went to crap when this particular scenario took place? Right, okay, that's because your breathing was all messed up, your heart was racing, and, and you, you weren't able to, to better control your thoughts. So here's some exercise that we're gonna teach you to actually be able to better manage that situation, tighten your shot group, and be more effective on the objective. And you wanna know what everyone did? They're like, tell me more. How do I do that? How do I become a better operator? Now, once I got gun through and all that, then all of a sudden it was like, oh, by the way, when you go home and you know, you're, your spouse yells at you or your kids are running around the house or you're stressful or you know, you, you got a bill you didn't anticipate. You're gonna notice similar things with respect to your stress level, right? The, the neurological component, the physiological component and the exercises that we're teaching you in order to maintain your focus and control within a combat environment can also be used in these other environments. And they started to see good results from this. So. That's one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and we've actually worked on that. I've worked with a gentleman that has done some training on this because they're starting to adopt this with, again, first responders, firefighters, police officers, et cetera. And, and I think that sort of prevention is something that we should be able to make more available. And, and obviously, we have some issues with the VA and everything else, but I think greater recognition of that sort of training could actually produce some really positive results by getting it before it takes place so that when it does take place, people can actually look at it analytically. It, it, you, you take the, you know, almost the mysticism out of it. They understand what's going on on a neurological and physiological basis. They're better prepared to deal with it. And that way, when you do get into a situation where someone has experienced something that is that has genuinely affected them and they need some assistance, they have the ability to look at it in a far more analytical uh, method and, and to be able to get the, the assistance and support that they need. So I, I hope that answers your question. All right, a couple more. I'm going to go quick. Justin, what are your thoughts on ranked choice voting? What are the pros and cons? All right, so ranked choice voting, very, very simple for those of you who don't know. Right now, when you go and you vote, you might have seven candidates, right? There's a Republican, a Democrat, a Libertarian, a Green, an Independent, a Constitution. You get to vote for one of them, right? You vote for one, I want this guy. And then you, you cash your ballot and you leave. Ranked choice would be you go in, you got the same ballot and you say, you know what? I typically vote for this party because I think they got the best chance of winning, but I don't actually think that person's the best candidate. So I'm gonna vote for, the, I'm gonna vote for this guy or gal as my number one and then I'm gonna vote for that other candidate as my number two. And so here's what happened. When your ballot goes in to be read, it, all the ballots are cast. And so if your number one choice doesn't make it, so your number one choice um, got, the got the lowest amount of votes. Okay, that one is now gone and they count your number two. Now, if your number one stays on there the whole way through, then that's the only person that you voted for. All right, so again, I don't have enough time to go on all that, but that's generally how it works. I think there's a lot of potential to it. They do this up in Maine. Some Republicans got really mad about it because the Republican won the plurality, which is to say that they won like 48% of the vote, but because there was ranked choice, when the second round came in, so you got three candidates, right? Top candidate got 40, whatever, 5% of the vote. Second candidate got 40% of the vote, right? Last candidate got what's left over. That candidate went out and then the second candidate, the second place candidate actually got more of that candidate's vote total than the first one did and they ended up winning the election. So they felt like, well, no, this isn't fair. Again, what ranked choice voting is about is about making sure 
that whoever wins an election has to win with at least 50% of the vote plus one. That's what ranked choice voting is trying to guarantee. Part of the social positive social effects of ranked choice voting is right now, because it's winner take all, no matter, you know, again, if you have seven candidates, you can win with 19% of the vote. So right now there, there's a huge emphasis to kind of trash the other candidates in order to win. Well, now if you're not only competing for all of your number one voters, but you're also competing for people that, you know, will get to vote for you on the next ballot, you have less incentive to trash the other candidates, right? That That's that's one of the social theories behind ranked choice voting. So I, I think there's some positive aspects to it. There's still some bugs to work out. I mean, people need to be more familiar with how it works and why it works the way it does. Um, so I, 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 do think, I do think it could yield some positive results. All right, Isaiah, does pineapple belong on pizza? Look, I, I believe in freedom. Do whatever you want. If you want to totally screw up your pizza with pineapple, that's on you. That is on you. I, I think, again, I think people should be free to do all sorts of stupid, horrendous things. I, I, is it a culinary crime? Yeah, on a moral level, but it shouldn't be on a legal level. So I hope that answers your question, Isaiah. All right. Kevin, when can we end this two-party system and a common-sense party be formed? <laughs> I mean, look, a lot of people ask about this. I, I don't know that the, the issue, first of all, we don't have a two-party system in the sense that there are only two parties. We have a two-party system in the sense that we have winner-take-all elections, and so it doesn't generally pay in order to you know, divide everything out into multiple parties. In parliamentary democracies that you have in place, in most, most countries in Europe are parliamentary democracies, you have a lot more political parties. I don't think that necessarily produces better results. And, and I don't, you know, again, when we talk about common sense, people disagree on what constitutes common sense. If you're someone that believes in postmodernism and deconstructionism, your view of common sense is going to be very, very different than someone that believes in the laws of logic and rational inference and, and the scientific method, right? So we're always going to have differences of opinion on these things. I, I don't, yeah, I think there's problems within our party system. I think there's problems within every party system. But the real solution is just stop giving the government so much dang power and then we can all live our lives and the government can only deal with this short enumerated parties that they were supposed to be. All right, James asks, what were the adverse effects of lockdowns? Okay, this is interesting. So um, there, there's been a lot of studies on this and, and there's some people saying that, well, the lockdowns were absolutely helpful and other people say lockdowns weren't helpful. The question becomes is, it depends on what data you look at at what time and what your intention was when you look at the data, right? If, if you're just being you know, across the board, here's what you generally recognize. Those states which engage in more stringent lockdowns, I'm not just talking about the 15-day lockdowns. Most states did that. But the more stringent lockdowns, there doesn't seem to be an, an, like an overwhelming, the, the, the data doesn't seem to support that that have an overwhelmingly positive effect. right? It, but it's difficult. It's based off of what you compare it to. So for instance, Florida has a similar population to, you know, New York with respect to the overall number of people. However, New York's colder. Florida's warmer. Florida has more of an aging population. Um, you know, New York City is, is a, you know, high degree metropolitan area. So a lot of times it's, it's kind of hard to compare these things. But overall, there, there was an interesting chart actually on Wallet Hub where they were looking at lockdown states versus non-lockdown states. 
And one of the, the things that they had that was interesting, I think it was done over the summer, was they demonstrated that the more stringent lockdown states, especially those that carried down pretty stringent lockdowns uh, for a significant point of time, they didn't necessarily have a better uh, rate when it came to COVID deaths. And, and that was adjusted per capita, right? So obviously we're not comparing the population of South Dakota to the population of Cal California. We're saying that, you know, per capita, did the lockdowns achieve you know, very, very easily identifiable positive results with respect to those states that didn't lock down. From what I've seen, the answer to that is no. Okay, next question. Was there very, very discernible effects from an economic standpoint? From what I've seen, the answer to that question is yes. Now, some people are claiming that, no, 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 California's doing just fine. They have budget surpluses. They have all this other stuff. Okay, yeah, but there's been a huge transfer of wealth with respect to federal dollars, and you've had a, a massive amount of printing of money. So simply looking at a state budget or the amount of money that the government is able to throw out to people right now, that's not a good indication of whether or not it had adverse economic effects. Right? That's, that's one of the difficulties of looking at this. So we have to take a logical view first. So again, it doesn't appear that lockdowns had a, a, a very demonstrable effect with respect to COVID deaths. Now, maybe there was less transmission. Maybe it would have been worse if they hadn't done it. Again, I don't, the data that I've looked at so far doesn't seem to illustrate that. But there was demonstrable effects with respect to an economic component. The other side of that has to do with things like suicide or drug overdoses. We were seeing a spike in these um, you know, suicides and drug overdoses or the number of people that were considered said they were considering suicide. Now, again, that doesn't mean that they committed suicide. This is why sometimes this is hard to quantify. But the number of people that were actually considering it, that number went up significantly higher. And so even if someone doesn't commit suicide, they might, you know, drink excessively, they might do drugs, they might do any number of other things that, that have adverse uh, personal and social effects. So I, I think that's one of the things that we're going to be reviewing over the next couple of years is looking at what were the various consequences to lockdowns, right? We know what these stated benefits were supposed to be, and they don't appear to have achieved as, as the, the results that were promised. That, again, I'm not saying that no lockdowns were appropriate, especially early on when we didn't know what all was going to happen. But again, you had some states that drug this out indefinitely and put so many restrictions on businesses that people were losing their businesses, they were losing their livelihood. They've been largely dependent upon inflationary monetary policy and redistributive policies in order to actually feed their families. Those are consequences that are going to go beyond what we're seeing right now. And, and that's going to be one of the biggest questions is what organizations are actually going to step up and do a good job of trying to quantify and qualify these things so that we can actually do good analysis, right? All right, another one. Um, Richie asks, what is the way to make the left and right work together? <laughs> Dude, if you answer that question, you will be a billionaire. Um, look, there, there's, there tends to be stuff. We talk about left and right. I think we should be talking more about individuals and ideas, right? Because the moment you say left and right, it's like, you're this and I'm this, right? And now we have a team. Instead of you're a person, I'm a person, this is an idea, let's discuss this idea. I, and, and I need to do a better job of this, right? Because it's so easy to get into this whole tribalistic mindset where it's like, you're the good, you're the bad guys, we're the good guys, et cetera. But the more we can focus things on you're a person, I'm a person, this is an idea, and, and here's the various philosophies underlying that idea. These are the potential benefits of the idea. These are the potential consequences of that idea, the, the cost, the benefits, et cetera. 
The more we can do that, the more I think we can actually move to a situation where we do a better job of working together. But one of the primary problems that we have right now, in my opinion, when it comes to civility in, in politics, there's a few rules with respect to civility. One, watch your tone. If you've got a teenage kid, you probably know what I'm talking about. Watch your tone. Two, don't assume evil intentions because you have, a different policy, you have policy disagreements. Now, someone could, in fact, have an evil intention, and if they demonstrate that, that's fine. That's fair game. But if, if the only thing you know about the other person is you disagree about a particular policy, don't automatically assume they're evil. All right, that's really important. Um, another component that I think is really important, and I, I'm concerned that this is the one that's going to cause us real problems. Don't rely on force to get what you want. Now, that seems easy. If you were to just ask people, hey, do you think you should be able to use violence to get what you want? Most people would be like, well, no, you shouldn't. I mean, you can use violence to defend yourself, but you shouldn't use violence to take something from somebody else. Right? But then ask, hey, do you think the government should do X, Y, and Z? And people say, oh, yeah, absolutely. The government should tax more. The government should regulate more. The government should you know, give more money out. The government should provide. Okay, that's using violence. That is using coercion in order to get what you want. And so part of the, the big debate or part of the, the big challenge is to, to reorient the way that we see the primary ways to solve problems. Because honestly, what this comes down to is that I believe in voluntarism and I believe in peaceful exchange. Right? That's what, and, and nobody expects that from a former combat veteran Green Beret conservative. Right? They all think that we're the type A personalities, rub it in your face. You know, who, who, uh, go USA. And yeah, we, we believe we're patriotic. We love our country, the whole deal. But no, I hate the idea of government forcing people or trying to manipulate people. I, I believe the government has a very limited role to play. And the reason why it's a limited role to play is because of the dangers associated with the government doing too many things, because the only way the government gets things done is through the application of force. And the threat of force, that is it. That is, that is the only thing that distinguishes government from every other area in the private sector. Any problem that you look at right now, whether it's a problem of how do I get to work? How do I communicate with people? What should I have for dinner? What shoes should I wear? Should I go to the baseball game or should I go to the movie? You can make decisions on all of that through peaceful and voluntary interaction with other human beings. You don't, you don't need to apply force to any of that. But if every time you see a problem, you think to yourself, my gosh, the government should do something, what you're really saying is, I think violence needs to be applied to the situation in order to get the end state I desire. And, and if I vote on it, that makes it perfectly justified. No, it doesn't. And that's one of the things that we, that's, that is the, the fundamental issue that we need to once again work out is what is the proper role of government. And it's not just from a philosophical component. It's not just from reciting the founders. It really goes down to that core idea of do we want to solve things peacefully and through voluntarism to include leaving each other alone, if that's the answer? Or do we want to insist that this is the way it's going to be done, and dang it, I'm going to get, and if you don't agree with me, I'm going to go to a politician to force you to do what I want you to do. Because if that's the sort of world that we're going to live in, don't be surprised with stakes so high where everyone is at each other's throats. And that's what we see going on right now. All right. A couple more, and then we're going to stop. I might have to do another one of these. Oh, my gosh. Um, 
Okay, Chris Anders, why are conservatives still ignoring Article 1, Section 8 that says only Congress can change from a state of peace to a state of war? Why are they still supporting an imperial presidency? Good answer by Chris Anders, or good question by Chris Anders. This has to do with things like the War Powers Act and the idea that the, the presidents of both political parties have routinely engaged in military activity that has not been directly authorized by Congress through one of the mechanisms that the Constitution permits. Now, keep in mind here. Just because Congress approves the budget for a war doesn't mean the president can then go to war. Congress is supposed to declare war. Now, there are other limited elements in which the president can actually, through executive power, engage in military action. Things like imminent threats to the United States, things like letters of mark and reprisal, et cetera, et cetera. But these are all very, very limited and small in scope. The reason why conservatives are ignoring this is because I think in part, governments are really, really good at war propaganda. Governments are really, really good at convincing people that whenever they go to war, they, it, is, it is entirely and completely for a just cause. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. Good versus evil. Get on board. And if you don't, you don't support the troops. That is garbage. Now, there are some people that will advocate against war in such a way to where I think that they, they needlessly and inappropriately condemn men and women in uniform that are, are trying to, again, do their job and do it well. Right, so I, I don't support that. And I'm not anti-war in the sense that I'm a pacifist. Sometimes I do believe war is necessary. But the thing I go back to once, you know, all the time is this. If it is important enough to send men and women in uniform overseas to potentially die for something, then damn it, it is important enough for members of Congress to stand up, fulfill their obligation, and vote on it. And I don't just mean passing a budget line. I mean voting to declare war. And if they're not willing to do that, if they just want to abdicate the responsibility over to the executive branch because it's easier for them to be pro-war when the war is going well and then to be anti-war and pretend like it's all the president's fault when it's going badly, then they're cowards and they should be kicked out. And they're not conservatives, by the way. Conservatism is focused on a foreign policy which says we are friends to everybody that wants to be friends with us. We're enemies to only those that want to you know, pose a threat to us. The primary way that conservatives want to engage with other countries is through cultural and economic exchange. We'd love to trade with you. We'd love to learn more about you, teach you more about us. But we're not here to tell you what to do. You're not here to tell us what to do. And, and we're not here to fight your wars for you. And we're not going to ask you to fight our wars for us. All right, so you need more conservatives that actually understand what a true conservative role is. And I'm, I'm tired of this idea that, well, the, the American government can't shrink from leadership in the world. Great. You want to be a leader? Be a leader for greater economic exchange and peaceful engagement. If we have to go to war, sometimes it's necessary. Absolutely. Congress, stand up, do your job, vote for war. Then when we go to fight the war, you fight it as fast, as quickly and effectively as possible in order to achieve a discernible end state and then get our people back home. It's not our job to, to build up everything. Now, do I recognize that there's some nuance in there? Yes, I do. I mean, I operated in unconventional warfare, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, etc. I understand the nuance. But what we have right now is completely inappropriate in part because conservatives have allowed it to go on. Okay. All right. Uh, one more. Brett Dutworth. Uh, why do Democrats hate the greatest country in the world and what events lead up to their uh, passion to see its demise? Okay. This is the part where I'm going to push back a little bit. I don't believe, like, I don't like this idea that, well, Democrats hate the greatest country in the world. I, I don't think that's true. I think certain people that also happen to be Democrats might hate the, the country or might hate or not think we're a good country or a great country. I think we're a horribly racist country. There are certainly a lot of people that seem to affiliate with the Democratic Party that also believe those things. I know a lot of other Democrats that don't necessarily agree with those things or 
still think that the United States is a great country and they still appreciate it. So I'm, I'm not going to agree with the overall generalization of that. Again, let, let's, let's practice, I'm going to practice what I preach. Instead of why do Democrats do this or why does the left do this or right or Republicans or whatever, let's do this. Person, person, idea. Okay, the idea that the United States is the greatest country in the world. What do we base this off of? Do we base it off of the idea, for those of us that believe it, and I do, do we base it off the idea that we're perfect? Absolutely not. Do we base it off the idea that our history is perfect? Absolutely not. So what criteria do we base this around? Well, some of it is probably just patriotism associated with loving the place that you, you were born and raised in. But another component has to do with things like the values that you have. The values that I have are, are come from my Christian faith. They're very, very focused on uh, the inherent value of human beings. It's very focused on the idea of each person having a right to uh, live their life the way they want, provided they don't infringe on the rights of others. It is based off of the flourishing of human thought and idea and creativity and innovation and being able to work in cooperation with other people, being able to associate the people you want to, being able to disassociate with the people you don't want to associate with. Right? I place a high value on freedom, self-determination, personal responsibility. In those respects, the United States has, I, I, I would argue, led the world both from a philosophical perspective and the practical application of these ideas. We are not perfect, but if you look at the results of what we have achieved in this country, and, and some of those results have been, a, have been a very, very painful experience for this country, for people in this country that have had to overcome significant challenges. But one of the most important questions that I always ask, because I was talking with somebody about this the other day, and there was, they were saying they didn't like the Constitution, or they thought the United States um, you know, was, was basically a you know, horrible government, et cetera. And I asked the question, compared to what? And he kind of stopped for a second. He said, what do you mean compared to what? He said, well, compared to what? Like, what are you comparing it to? If you're comparing it to a perfect ideal, then I, I might fully agree with you that the United States has fallen you know, far short of a perfect ideal. But what, what I need to know is what are you comparing it? Well, and he said, well, I didn't realize I had to compare it to something. I'm like, you don't have to compare it to something. But that can be useful with respect to the conversation because as I compare the United States with respect to the challenges that we have faced and the way that Americans have risen to those challenges compared to with what has happened throughout time and space. So the rest of the world as we see it today, combined with the rest of the world as we've seen it throughout history, I don't see how you can't be impressed with what the United States has been able to accomplish and what the American people have been able to accomplish and the various ideas which inform that sort of activity in society. And I think that's great. I think that's incredible. I think it's truly unique within world history. And I think it's something that has influenced and inspired other countries and other people to do other things. How do I know that? Because millions of people come to this country every year. This supposedly horrible, terrible, no good, awful country literally has people trying to get here by any means necessary, selling everything they own, even crossing illegally, for an opportunity to be a part of what we're doing here. And I think that speaks for itself. And so I think when we can talk about it in those sort of terms and not make it you versus me, left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, but just one person to another person, what is the idea, the concept, or the proposition that we're considering Let's define our terms. Let's, let's compare it, not just with an ideal, with what we've also seen throughout human history. And then let's come to some logical conclusions for how we make it even better than it currently is. 
I want to thank you again for joining us. Thank you again for your questions. If you have a question for us, there are two primary ways that you can, you can engage with us right now. One is on YouTube. The other is on Facebook. Sometimes I'll go up on Facebook and I'll say, hey, look, we're going to do an episode specifically on questions. Let us know what you want. Sometimes I go on Facebook and say, hey, what are some issues you'd like us to tackle for our next episode, right? That engagement on Facebook, you want to get in on that conversation, that's a great place to do it. Facebook and YouTube. We read all the comments on YouTube as well. Try to get in there and respond as much as possible. Like and share, like and share, like and share. If you're listening to this on the Apple Podcast or Spotify, do us a favor. Go in there, give us a five-star rating. You give it a, When you give it a five-star rating, when you take two seconds and give us a five-star rating, it actually boosts us to where it actually, these organizations, whether it be you know Spotify or, or um things like Apple Podcasts, or when you like and subscribe and you share it, Facebook algorithms, YouTube algorithms, Apple Podcasts algorithms, it then starts pushing it out and recommending it to more people. So if you think what we're doing here is something that should be shared, I don't want you to think that you sharing it just means it goes out to your universe. It actually sends the proper signals that we need to get it out to even a broader universe. And if that's what we want to see more of, that's what we need from you. Like, share, subscribe, write us a review. Once again, I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you very much. I'm a little bit more casual today. All right, but uh, thank you for sticking with me. We'll see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.